Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia, utilizing the colonized space of the internet. And I'm Zach James, also occupying stolen Lenape lands. Thank you for joining us today for our final Q&A episode of season two, uh, which will actually be our final episode of this season. And we're so grateful for your support this year and, of course, last year as well. This work is so meaningful. So thank you to those who listen, who call in with questions, who generously give their time to be interviewed, and who make this podcast possible. So we thought it was really important to begin this second season of the podcast with Indigenous voices, and then to conclude by speaking with white allies as a way of highlighting that individuals of all identities, experiences, historical legacies, and degrees of privilege can play a critical role in not only demystifying diversity, but in dismantling the systems and structures that disadvantage difference. When really, you know, it's our position, and I think anyone who works in DEI would attest that differences really ought to be embraced and celebrated. Exactly. And if you haven't heard the episodes, Allies, Racism Hurts White People Too, and Allies, Investing in a Better Society for All, Please stop listening now and go back and listen to those. The information in those episodes is so important, especially because a question we get asked all the time is, what can I do and how can I get involved? Those episodes really illuminate the benefits of white allyship and give some great pointers for people of any identity on how to be a better ally. Yeah. And of course, since we're speaking more in depth about allyship, we thought it was only fitting today to have our guest expert be someone who literally wrote the book on allyship. So Melinda Brianna Epler, founder and CEO of Change Catalyst, is a TED speaker, a diversity and inclusion advocate, and a leader building inclusive innovation around the world. Melinda has 25 years of experience elevating brands and developing business innovation strategies for startups, Fortune 500 companies, global NGOs, and so much more. She does so many amazing things. As the CEO of Change Catalyst, Melinda works with her clients and partners to solve diversity and inclusion issues together. Using her background in storytelling, behavioral science, and large-scale culture change, she is a strategic advisor for companies, innovation hubs, and governments around the world. She also co-founded Tech Inclusion, a series of global solutions-focused conferences where she partnered with over 450 tech companies and community organizations and hosted over 50 solutions-focused diversity and inclusion events. Previously, Melinda was a marketing and culture executive and award-winning documentary filmmaker. She's a TED speaker. We're going to put a link to her TED Talk, uh, which is amazing, in the show notes. And she speaks, mentors, and writes about diversity and inclusion, inclusive innovation, empathy, and entrepreneurship. As I mentioned, she is the author of How to Be an Ally. We'll also put a link to that in the show notes. And she hosts the popular Leading with Empathy and Allyship podcast, and we will include links to that. So a lot of links for today. Melinda has spoken on hundreds of stages worldwide, and we could not be more thrilled to have her with us today. So Melinda, thank you so much for joining us. Mm, thank you, Darylise. I really appreciate it. Um, I appreciate being here and I appreciate all you do. And I wanted to acknowledge too that I live and work on the traditional land of the Ramaytush Ohlone peoples in Yalamu. And I honor and respect their elders, their past, present, and emerging elders, and recognize I benefit um, from living and working on their unceded 
ancestral homeland and commit to working to redress the legacies of colonialism. Thank you so much, Melinda. And I just want to say, and no shade to any of our previous guests that we've had on here, but I think you and Adam Waterbear DePaul are the only ones that have added your land acknowledgements as well. So thank you so much. And I think that speaks also to your the work that you do and your intentional commitment to allyship. So I just want to say, I mentioned your TED Talk previously, and I first found out about you because a friend of mine sent me that TED Talk, which is entitled Three Ways to Be a Better Ally in the Workplace. And I watched it once and I watched it twice and I watched it three times. And I thought, if she is willing to speak with me, oh. I want to speak with this person. <laughs> so <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So, you know, the first question that we have for you today is to just ask you, so why is workplace allyship so important? You know, we all have our individual reasons for allyship. And, and so I will say that, that we often start with the business case. And that's actually usually not why people are motivated to be allies. So, it's, yes, the, the business case is clear that um, our, our, we, we did a, a study. Here's another link for you. We have we did a, a study on allyship. Um, and so we can share the, the link to that, too, an allyship report really looking at um, the business case for allyship, what people want from allies and so on. And, and so the business case is that, People benefit from allyship. Our teams benefit from allyship. Our organizations benefit from allyship. People are twice as likely to feel safe and feel like they belong in their workplace when they have an ally, at least one ally. And that number grows the more allies that people have. It, it also improves engagement, productivity, collective happiness, innovation, you know, all of these things that are that are key to business success. So that is one. I personally am an ally and I think we should all be allies because it's the right thing to do because um, the world is inequitable and we need to make it equitable. And, you know, it's not, it's unfair. We need to make it fair. Other people are allies because they want to be better leaders. We see a lot of, uh, of that as well. And, and, and then quite a few people are allies because they want their, their children or their grandchildren to grow up in a world that is equitable, where they have equal opportunities and also where they're creating equal opportunities for others. So there's a, there's a lot of different whys, and those are a few. There's, there's many more. Got it. So, Melinda, we, we know that the emotional and the financial cost of the lack of allyship you know, it seems very evident when we start looking at the research, but but something I often think about is why, you know, especially when the case for allyship is so strong, why are some people still like resistant to being an ally? Yeah, I mean, I can I quote a research here, too, because I think it's important to really look at we, we all have our assumptions, but we wanted to really look at the data. And the number one answer that people gave for what they found most challenging about being an ally was just a lack of skills and knowledge, a lack of confidence, not that they didn't want to be an ally, but that they didn't know how they didn't know how to be an ally. And then there's also the second was a lack of time or priority or patience to do it. Um, so we, we get so busy in our lives, we don't feel like we can be allies, which allyship can be a very quick act that can make a big difference in people's lives. So I don't agree with that. And it just means that people aren't aware yet of how easily they can um, step up to be an ally. And then the third that came up, but it was a much... Uh, much lower on the on the scale. Those two were at the top by far. It was not having a supportive workplace, 
And then also uh, sometimes there's a trust deficit that, that we have a lack of trust being built interpersonally and as a result don't feel like we can be allies. So, um, but mostly people just don't have a lack of skills. Only 3% of the population ultimately once they learn about the need for allyship is actively opposed to allyship. So it's very small numbers that we're talking about. They're very loud, but it's very small numbers. Thank you so much for shining light on that because I think often a lack of skill sort of comes across as a lack of interest or investment and they are two very different things or or opposition when really it's just a lack of know-how as you point out. You know, and I think my question to you and Zach's question to you were both why related questions and I love that you talked about the how because that's what really stood out to me in reading your book. You talk about how to be an ally and you really move beyond the why. You do give give some why and some reasons, but like a lot of your book is very skill-based and you talk about specifically the skill of empathy and something that you wrote that really stood out to me was there's a sentence in the book and it says if showing empathy doesn't come easy for you, it's okay. It can be learned. And I love the idea that empathy is like any other skill that can be learned and expanded upon, et cetera. And so can you talk more about that concept? Yeah, there's actually research that shows that, that, that we can build our empathy. And I will say, I'm going to give you my own personal story here that I didn't grow up having a lot of empathy. I grew up in a family that didn't really show or discuss our feelings. Uh, we just didn't talk about our feelings. We held them in, not much on our faces, not much in our voices um, about what was going on. And so it made it really difficult for me to have or to show empathy for people. And as a result, I approach people very intellectually rather than emotionally. And, and it was over years of kind of recognizing that's not how I want to show up in the world, um, that I, I moved I actively sought out uh, learning about different different people's experiences, talking with people about their different experiences, and really understanding the what empathy is. I mean, empathy is is it's gaining insight, and it's also engaging with people. and And we often forget that engagement part of empathy is really it's an active. It's not passive. Um, good empathy is active, and allyship is empathy in action, right? And and so. Over time, I actually went from somebody who didn't really practice empathy to teaching empathy and um, building empathy in, in leaders. And, and I would say now I probably, as a result of having so much empathy, I actually have to do practice some self-care and um, because of the work that I do uh, around um, toxicity and trauma and, and so on, I take a lot of that in and I have to kind of move that through my body, through yoga, through meditation and, and so on. So it's, it's definitely, I am a case in point of it being something that you can learn over time and sort of a muscle that you have to kind of build over time and then keep using. And there are lots of studies that, that back that up as well. Thank you so much. And, you know, I'm hoping, especially since we told people at the top of this episode, if they haven't listened to the two episodes that we're basing this Q&A on to go back and listen, I'm hoping that they will. But just in case anyone has not listened to those episodes, you were a voice on both of those episodes. And you described a little bit about your background and some things that you said about sort of like not learning to talk about feelings early on and just growing up in an environment where like maybe that wasn't part of the collective social currency or whatever of your family. Would you talk a little bit about your background? Let me start with my story just kind of briefly. I grew up in Oakland and then in, in South Seattle in very diverse neighborhoods. I went to um, schools that majority, were majority minority, they called them at the time. So I, I think it was unusual 
I didn't know it at the time, but I was unusual for a white person really having very diverse friends um, as I was growing up. And that that did um, shape me in a lot of different ways and, and made me kind of unique uh, compared to other, of to, to, to white colleagues. And I did grow up uh, kind of white middle class. Um, so there's definitely some white middle class in the US that there's a lot of privilege in that. And I also have experienced throughout my life at the same time, uh, discrimination and um, and sexism as being a, a woman and, and I am bi and I have some invisible disabilities and, and so on. So I think we all have some sort of privilege in that I think I said this in the, in the last episode too that we all have some sort of privilege in just being here being able to listen to this there's some there's some privilege in that and each of us there's always somebody with more privilege and less privilege than us as well um, and so that is that is a really important thing to recognize as you walk through life when I grew up my my family it's not to say that I you know my 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 mother was a school teacher and when she was pregnant with me. She hid it for as long as she could until she couldn't hide it anymore. It was visible. And then she was fired for being pregnant and then was basically gave up her, her career because she had children and didn't go back until we were in high school. And my father, he worked for HUD for housing and urban development. So he, I would say, I grew up in a family that cared about society and about inequity at an intellectual level. And so there is some empathy in there and not a lot interpersonally, I would say. So that's, I think the gap there is, is intellect. You can, you can do so much when you see this as an intellectual problem. And then once you get deeper into the interpersonal issues, that's another level. It's a deeper level of understanding and also taking action on, on that interpersonal level. There's really allyship as well. Kind of drafting off of learning empathy and, and this process of learning how to be an ally. When learning any new skill, we're going to make mistakes. You know, I can remember the first time I cooked eggs for my family and people spitting out eggshells afterwards. And <laughs> I, we rebounded from it quickly. It was a joke. It was fun. And, and we moved on. But when someone's learning this, learning how to become an ally, it makes a mistake. It's probably a much different feeling in a much different circumstance. How does someone move forward in this space after making a mistake? Yeah, you know, um, it depends on the mistake. It depends on, on on what that mistake was, whether that was public or private. We all, yes, we all make mistakes. And that is a part of allyship as part of allyship is having the courage to take risks, even though you know you might make mistakes because it's important to take action as an ally. And, and sometimes we can get stuck in the fear of making mistakes. And that is not allyship when we get stuck and we don't get past that fear. So we don't take action when inequity exists. Um, that is actually more harmful. And so we want to take action. And as we're learning, we're going to make mistakes. And the key is to recognize when we do, to apologize for those mistakes and to keep moving forward. You know, when you're apologizing, it's really important that it's not about you, it's about the person that you're apologizing to, which I think, so not centering it on yourself, <laughs> centering it on the harm and the, the, the personal harm that, that you've caused, which means that it's more about making sure that that, doing what you can to see if you can right that wrong, right in that moment and um, apologize. But a part of that apology is, is also saying how you're going to do better. 
And so really, how are you going to move forward? How are you going to make a difference? Um, how are you going to learn from this and grow from this? And then move, move forward, keep taking action. Take for us to fight it, to realize that we all are one. Make unity and inner peace the only reason. Cause we need better, need so much better. We deserve better. I was thinking about what you just said, Melinda, and one of the things that we explored when we had our earlier conversations was the idea of intent and how much intent kind of matters and the limitations of intent. And I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about where intention and implementation intersect and how, to paraphrase your words, you said like intent matters, but it's also not enough. And so I'm wondering if we can explore that a little bit further. Yeah, there's intent versus impact, basically, right? And um, you can have good intentions and harm people if you say the wrong thing, if you do the wrong thing. And so that impact matters in that moment. Also, you can have in good intentions but never do anything. That's also a negative impact, right? Because we know that there is inequity. We know there is injustice. We know that that people are being harmed. And if we're not doing anything about it, we're actually complicit in that. And so intention is, is the first step, maybe. And then after that, the actions that you take and what actions you take, how you take those actions, what you put behind that intent is so key, is so important. You know, that's so interesting because as you said that, I was wondering like, and I don't know, I don't know that this is an absolute, but I almost wonder if someone with really great intentions who doesn't do much of anything almost might be more harmful than someone who uh, it could be argued like does the right things, but maybe doesn't have that emotional investment or isn't quite as kind or empathetic on the inside. So I, I don't know if you've come across that or have any experiences to share around that when maybe the intent isn't there, but the execution is and how that works. I can't remember what the quote is exactly, but Dr. Martin Luther King talks about this. But essentially, he was saying that the danger is in the white middle class who does nothing rather than the white supremacists, the really deep racist folks. It is the people that do nothing that are the most harmful. I just want to add that after our conversation with Melinda, I looked up the Martin Luther King Jr. quotes that she was referencing, and there were actually several during which Martin Luther King alluded to the point that Melinda made. And so I just want to read a few of those. So Martin Luther King Jr. says, history will have to record that the greatest tragedy of this period of social transition was not the strident clamor of the bad people, but the appalling silence of the good people. King also said, he who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps to perpetrate it. He who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. And last, but certainly not least, we will remember not the words of our enemies, 
but the silence of our friends. So I just wanted to share those three quotes. There are many more from Martin Luther King on the subject of silence and the subject of inaction. And we encourage you to go and look those up and read more and learn more. But back to the interview. So I, yes, absolutely. I think that what we've created is a society that revolves around white leaders. And when we are complicit in that, when we are living within that system as white people, when we were living in that system and not doing anything about it, we are saying it's okay. We are reaping the benefits of it without writing the wrongs within it. And so there, there is, I do think that is very harmful. I will say that in a confrontation or in an, in an, a uh, one-on-one relationship, probably a white supremacist is going to be way scarier than somebody who has good intentions, right? And also the people that I think we need to move and that we need to focus on around allyship are those folks that have good intentions, but aren't yet taking action or aren't taking very big actions. One of the reasons, and we explored this a little in the episodes, but I think it's really helpful for people to hear it a number of different ways and from a number of different perspectives, like to really drive this home, because it's a new concept for many people. But we explored the idea that white privilege also hurts white people, because I think one of the the gaps in getting white people to take an active role is sometimes like, you know, you mentioned time, right? But we make time for things that are priorities and that feel like like we've got a stake in it, right? Like if, if I can see the, the harm to me, my family, my loved ones, I'm going to be way more likely to take an active role in doing something than if I kind of think, oh, that's not really my issue. And so can you talk a little bit about how white privilege harms white people and why there should be that personal investment from a from a personal standpoint, not just a morality standpoint. One thing I will say to start here is that when I first heard the word white privilege, the words white privilege, I was doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work, and I didn't like it. It didn't feel good to me. It didn't feel, you know, I have... I have worked hard in my life and I have struggled in my life as well. And I believe that when we, it's a push word, it's a, um, it can become a barrier to change. And it is, it is real. It is absolutely real. And I, I don't, and I don't mean in any, any way that it is not. And also when people are first starting to learn about this, to tell them that they have privilege that other people don't, to tell them to kind of confront them. It feels like a confrontation um, when when we're talking about white privilege. And so I think it's important that we kind of keep that in mind that, yes, it does interlink with white fragility. And it, and and also there is some realness to that. And our objective is to change behavior. And so if we know that that can be a barrier, then I think it's really important to find ways to move through that barrier and acknowledge that that barrier has existed. So for me, really starting with white privilege is probably not the way, is not the way that I normally do because I do believe that it's not a way in for a lot of people. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. Yeah. And I'm wondering like, what is an in for a lot of people Mm -hmm. that, that you do start with that helps people to see why they should care personally? That is the question, right? Um, going back to our study, because I wanted to know that too. And so I was like, this is, we're, we're going to ask this question in our research. So let me tell you how people initially learn about the need for allyship and the need for, for activating themselves as an ally. 
26% of people learn about a negative experience that a colleague or a friend went through. So that is listening to stories. And really most of it is listening to stories. It's a, a colleague or a friend or somebody's experience in an event, a negative experience a family member went through. So it is storytelling. It is telling people my own experience, which is the hard part, right? Because that is bringing up our own trauma when we're telling those stories. It's not fair. <laughs> and also it is, does seem to be the mechanism for change. Sometimes people see, 8% of people see things through social media. So it's, again, stories. And pretty much everything is stories, except 20% uh, of people have a negative experience themselves with harassment, with bullying, with uh, discrimination. And I think some of the folks that you interviewed in, in those two episodes were talking about that as their own experience kind of led them to understand that other people had experiences with discrimination. If I have an experience with sexism, that's going to make me more aware of the isms that other people experience, right? Um, potentially, that is that is definitely an entry point for a lot of people. So the entry point, I think, is, is storytelling. And rather than kind of more broad frameworks, it's really like initially it's the storytelling. Then when people actually get to a point of knowing that there's an issue. Then people want to learn through interactive training and workshops and self-guided online courses, basically. <laughs> Those two things kind of above and above, beyond. People want to learn in a more formal setting about what this is, what they can do about it, really actionable things that they can take in. Hi, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. And I wanted to share with you, our valued listeners, some of the awesome things we're doing in the DEI space. Myself, Darylise, and the whole Demystifying Diversity team are facilitating corporate trainings, constructive conversations, workshops, one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions, and so much more. To find out how you can work with us, whether you're an individual or representing a corporation, school, or any other organization, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash services to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 200 people, having become a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you uplevel your DEI skills to improve your profitability, productivity, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And uh, don't forget, buy the workbook too. Happy learning. When we act as an ally, when we when we have build empathy for each other, when we act as an ally, it actually makes us happier. <laughs> There's a dopamine um, response in in our brains, really, that when we take action, it actually does make us happier on an individual level. Uh, of course, also living in a society that is inequitable, that is where some people have privilege and other people are marginalized in that society is harmful to all of us. It, it, I mean, it, that's a violent society that is is not a society that I want to live in or I want children in my family to live in. My stepson is Black and is nine, and I fear he, he lives across the country, and I fear every day that something is going to happen to him. How is that fear? 
how is that fear helpful in our society for, for anybody that is not okay? And so I personally believe that it is harmful to all of us and everybody has to decide what their own motivation is, though I don't want to impose my motivations on other people. Um, you find what your own motivation is for creating change and you hold on to that and you let that drive you forward. Right. Belinda, I've heard you say, you know, the word privilege and how that can be confrontational. And I've also heard you use the word influence. So is there or what, what is the distinction between those two words? Our privilege is an influence. And also uh, we all have influence. I mean, you you both have influence too. You're, ho you're hosting the show. There's, there's definitely some influence that you have in, in the world in addition to many other things that you're doing. It, so we all have influence and, and it's finding what that influence is. When you have power, I would say you can influence change. And so leaders definitely have a lot of power in their organizations to influence change. Um, most of those leaders are also leaders with privilege. And so there is it kind of intertwined in that there's power, there's influence, and there's privilege. And all of those together, you find what those are for you, and you can use those to benefit other people. Um, that is the key for for allyship is is taking that, acknowledging it, taking that, and using it to impact change on behalf of others. <laughs> yeah. So, kind of building on that, how can the language we use either help or hinder allyship? And can you give maybe a couple examples of language that you'd use? I tend to use power and influence more than privilege, but I also use privilege. So I'm not saying that I don't use that word. I'm just saying it. I don't use it as a kind of a, a starting point. And I think that is that is the key is really understanding what's going to influence behavior because that is the ultimate goal. How do we influence behavior? How do we influence change? And it is a combination of understanding where people are in their allyship journey. If you're at the very beginning in your allyship journey, that's a very different conversation than when you have been doing this work for a long time. Right. So in the beginning, you don't want to tell somebody, well, you need to learn about the historical harm and change your biases and stop doing microaggressions. And really you need to create systemic change at the same time as well. And you need to influence other people to create change and you need to end and, and so start at the beginning of, as you said in your, your, in the episode is learn and unlearn. That's the beginning. And then really understand how you interrupt those biases that you have learned and need to be unlearning. And then really work to understand how you might be unintentionally harming people through microaggressions. And once you've kind of got that, then let's talk about how do you interrupt microaggressions when you see them? What do you do when you, how do you intervene? And then once you've kind of got that, let's talk about, okay, now we need to really address systemic inequity. What is your role in creating change in the systems and the processes that we're all a part of? Um, what can you do to make a difference? What is your power? What is your influence to create change at the systemic level? So it's really kind of building over over time. That's kind of what I was was trying to say earlier is, is that um, we need to start where people are. Thank you so much. And I really want to kind of go back to something that you said earlier about the power of storytelling as a way to get people to want to change, right? And and you, you spoke about the research that you all did that really quantified that, right, for folks. And I'm curious, you know, you're a storyteller, you're a podcast host, you're someone who's always hearing and telling stories about allyship or the absence of allyship. And I'm wondering, Melinda, can you share maybe one story that has impacted you about allyship? And then another story that has impacted you about the absence of it? So like one story about allyship and one story about the lack of allyship. 
I'm going to start with my own lack of allyship because I learned a lot from it about how to um, show up for other people as an ally. So several years ago, about nine years ago, I was an executive at an international engineering firm. I was the head of marketing and culture. And it was my dream job in a lot of different ways. I was using my behavior change skills and my culture change skills and uh, my storytelling skills and working with hospitals, healthcare systems to reduce their energy and their waste and their water use and also to improve their social impact. So I was in a place that I thought was my dream job and it became the worst professional experience of my life. And it took me a while, a long time, several months to realize what was happening. I was belittled. Um, my experience was belittled. I was constantly being questioned about my experience and my expertise. I was interrupted. I hardly could get a word in, in our uh, leadership meetings. I would share an idea and then be kind of dismissed. And then a few minutes later, somebody else would say the same idea. And that man would take it and run with it and be championed for it. And a lot of other things happening in that space as well, that all kind of were what Megan Smith, the former White House CTO, calls death from a thousand paper cuts. The little things every day in the workplace that can really wear you down and undermine your expertise, undermine your ability to lead. Uh, I was the only woman on a leadership team of 19. So I, the culture was just not set up for me. It was not set up for my success. And I was an outsider, was seen as an outsider and treated like an outsider. And it was awful. Um, and I, I internalized it. I internalized it. What came out was imposter syndrome, the feeling that I don't deserve to be there and, and so on. And lots of different things come out as a result of um, having these kind of daily microaggressions. I didn't have an ally. I could have used an ally in that moment. And in fact, I had the opposite. I had gaslighting. I had people who said it was all in my head. And, and then I started looking at the data, realized it was not just me, that we had a real problem in our workplace. So that's kind of my experience with a lack of allyship. I will say that late, late, late in this process of kind of understanding, um, there was a principal that came to me, asked me to lunch one day who I didn't interact with regularly. And he, he um, very uncomfortably sat down at lunch and said, you know, I've been meaning to tell you something for a long time. He said, I, I think people are treating you differently because you're a woman. And he started to list all of the different ways. And it was like, it was like a flood of emotions for me because it was the finally somebody was saying, was recognizing it. Even that recognition can make a big difference. It's, you know, one, one step. So it, that was my experience kind of with a lack of allyship and also just one little, little step forward, a lot more that he could have done, but at least he recognized. Thank you so much. And I want to ask too, I mean, I'm so glad that you shared that. And can you share an experience of allyship so that people listening to this can, can really hear the impact of, of allyship? And another example of that, because it, these stories are striking and they are what I think people can reference and refer to in their, in their lives and in their willingness to create change. Um, trying to think of a story that I didn't tell in the other episodes. <laughs> um, uh, hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm actually striking out. I'm not, I'm not thinking of it. Uh, sorry. I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> no, no, that's totally fine. But I think that speaks to like, yikes you know like how how the the widespread absence of allyship 
Yeah, I think, you know, it, it is true that, that, you know, I ask in my trainings regularly, I ask people to share an experience that they have had with allyship, um, with an ally, you know, and how has an ally shown up for you in your life? And it sometimes takes a lot of time for people to remember this. And it depends on what your identity is uh, a lot. Like a lot of white men have no problem kind of thinking about how allies have stepped up for them. And, and then the less privilege that you have, the more uh, intersectionally underrepresented and marginalized experiences that you've had, the, the sometimes the harder it is to kind of come up with that. Allyship actions, We've cataloged thousands of allyship actions and, and they can be very small to very large from looked out for my well-being in general. And uh, someone said that uh, they were experiencing a difficult time in their, in their work, in their life. They were experiencing a difficult time in their life and it just kind of overwhelmed with life. And as a result, they were starting to get delayed on a deadline and somebody one of their colleagues saw that that was happening and stepped in and said, hey, how can I help? And stayed late to make sure that they they met their deadline. I mean, even those acts can make a big difference in somebody's life. That's That may have meant the difference between somebody keeping their job and being fired because they had all this other stuff going on in their lives. Uh, you know, it, mentoring is, is a way that a lot of people recognize allies that have shown up for them in their lives. But then also, like so many people have shared stories of, of how they were being belittled in front of their team. And then a, a manager stopped that and said, that is not okay. And, and really stood up for them and said, hey, this person has this, this, and this expertise. They don't deserve to be treated that way and, and really moved the conversation in a different direction. So lots of different ways that allies show up for people. Something that came up for me through listening to both episodes has been allyship and expectations and how the absence of allies is sometimes especially painful when those who you think you might expect to be the ally aren't. So can we dive into that and, and how maybe, you know, of course, especially in, you know, a workplace environment, how thinking a person has your back only to find out they don't, how, how does that impact the people? There are studies out there that will show that I think there's a the lean in study last year showed that people's perceptions of their own allyship actions were higher than other people's perceptions of their allyship actions. So like white people tend to say they're an ally and say that they take this and this and this actions, but the black people in their workplace, for example, say, mm, not so much. They don't actually show up for them in these ways. And there, what our research shows is there is a misalignment in how people say that allies have showed up with, for them and what they want from allies. Those are not necessarily the same thing, right? And so Black people in the U.S. tend to want their allies to show up for them by learning about their biases and interrupting any harm that they're experiencing. But that's not how their allies show up for them. The allies show up for them in very different ways. And so part of allyship is seeing that situation and learning what somebody needs, what somebody needs from an ally, what somebody wants from an ally, rather than assuming what they want from an ally. And so, yeah, often, especially for Indigenous people and Black people and people with disabilities, that interrupting the harm that I'm experiencing comes to the top of the list of what I want from an ally. And for a lot of people, fear gets in the way of doing that. 
And so we let that fear get in the way of interrupting that harm in the moment, then that can be twice as devastating because we have the harm from the microaggression initially. And then we also have the harm from being in a room full of people that aren't doing anything to stop that harm. So how do we change that? I, it, we have to recognize that, that people do have that fear of interrupting microaggressions, interrupting harm, and teach them how to do it because that's that's helpful in getting over that fear is if I know how, if I, ha if I have some kind of quick scripts, some quick things that I can say or do in that moment, if I have some skills that I can apply to the situation without really thinking very much about it. So I don't have to, you know, maybe before that amygdala response and kicks in the fear, I have that immediate script that I can say in that moment. Um, that makes a big, big difference. So, so I definitely think that the training people around how to intervene can make a big difference in this particular situation. So that is one. The other is we just have to get over our fear and remember that most of what the fear is, is discomfort. <laughs> and allyship is uncomfortable. This work is uncomfortable. And Mm, so is racism. And <laughs> so we need to, like, we need to move past that and move beyond that discomfort for the sake of ourselves and each other. So we do need to move past that fear and, and just get over it and take action because inaction is harmful as we, as we see and as we know. Thank you so much. And I really love how you talked about sort of for the person who thinks of themselves as an ally to actually be open to giving allyship in the way that that individual might need it or benefit from it or might want. I just want to make a distinction for anyone listening to this between asking someone how you can support them personally or professionally and asking them to educate you about Absolutely. racism or, you know, yeah. like a microaggression, <laughs> et cetera. So yeah, but it is, you make a really important point that like assuming what someone needs and trying to give that person what you think is going to be beneficial to them is very different than actually being supportive to that person in the moment. You know, I think about specifically like gender pronouns and I will very regularly correct people about those issues. But after I do that, I will often then speak to the person who was misgendered and say like, Hey, was that okay? You know, are you comfortable with what I did? You know, like, is that something that you want me to do? And nine times out of 10, the person's like, yeah, thank you so much. And every once in a while, someone's like, you know, like, I don't really mind or like, I would have felt comfortable saying whatever it is. And then I'm willing to kind of course correct. But I think it is really important to intervene and then also to give that person agency, right? If the whole issue is disempowerment, we want to like empower people, but not expect that person to educate us about as a representative for all people of that marginalized mm -hmm. identity. Here's a short message from our episode sponsors, without whose support the Demystifying Diversity podcast wouldn't be possible. As we've seen more than ever in the last couple of years, health is critical, and a big part of physical, mental, and emotional health is providing our bodies with the nutrients they need, which is why I'm a big fan of supplements. But not just any supplements. I get all my supplements from Vita Supreme. The company's products are amazing, and they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 10% off on everything at their online store. 
In fact, they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of my favorite supplements at vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Or you can take a look at their website and purchase any of their many products. When you're ready to check out, just enter the code DIVERSITY to receive your 10% discount. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code DIVERSITY for 10% off. As you may or may not be aware, Demystifying Diversity podcast partner Zach James is a proud graduate of Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, STHM. Go Owls! And has experienced firsthand STHM's ongoing support and investment in each individual student. Both last season and this season, as part of their ongoing effort to prioritize diversity, equity, and inclusion in their business practices and strategic plan, STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion has provided invaluable support and resources to the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And STHM's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion is taking an active role in so many other incredible initiatives, from spearheading student-facing DEI programming to faculty education to collaboration with various corporations and organizations. As the sport, tourism, and hospitality industries have become more globalized and integrated than ever before, STHM acknowledges their responsibility to help move these industries forward by minimizing polarization and creating equitable, inclusive, and diverse leaders. To learn more about Temple University's School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management, visit sthm.temple.edu. That's sthm.temple.edu. Melinda, Zach and I are going to have a few more questions for you, but I feel like this would be a really great time to share the listener call-in questions and email questions. So the first question, we'll start with an email question. Um, A listener named Sheila emailed us and wrote, this recent episode about allyship made me feel seen. I am a Black woman who is exhausted by quote-unquote friends who seem to think I owe it to them to educate them on how to be an ally. I know they mean well, but I don't want to spend my time or energy educating white people on how to be less racist when them expecting me to do that is actually kind of racist. So how can I let people know to do their own work without coming across as angry or unkind? Thanks. I feel a little bit uncomfortable answering this as a white person (laughs) because I think that there's a lot of Black people that can answer this better. And for what it's worth, thinking to all of the different times that Black people have been murdered, injustice has been front and center of our society. When George Floyd was murdered in particular, so many of my Black friends said, what do I do? Because my inbox is suddenly flooded with all these white people who have good intentions And they're saying, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I created some resources at the time and I said, hey, you all, if this is helpful, just give people this link. And a lot of my friends did that. Um, So you might have a link ready and say, hey, I'm hurting right now. I mean, be honest, I'm hurting right now. This is not my job. And I appreciate you wanting to learn. And here is a resource to go learn. 
have a quick answer at the ready and acknowledge, yeah, thank you, um, or not thank you, but I'm glad that you're in the learning process. Here's some resources to go learn. Um, and just kind of leave it at that because it's not your job. It's not your job to educate. And there are so many resources out there. There's so many books out there. There's Google, there's Wikipedia, there's so much out there. So anybody who's learning to be an ally, whether you're learning, whoever you're learning to be an ally for, go do your own research. Don't ask people to educate you. It is, is not fair. It's not just, it is reinforcing. I agree. It is reinforcing the inequity that already exists. Yeah. And we'll put a link in our resource page for sure. And I know Zach and I, this was something Zach and I both experienced in the wake of George Floyd and talked about a lot behind the scenes. And I, yeah, I would send people to a resource page. And also because of the position that I'm in, I would say, you know, I do this for a living. So mm-hmm. I really, you know, like, um, you can pay if me. People want to, <laughs> you know, like if, you, if you really want to take advantage of my expertise, like, great, we can set up a consultation. But otherwise, there are free resources available. And if you don't feel like checking out free resources, go hire an expert, you know, because it's not my job to educate you. And I said it in a nice way, I hope, I think. But also, why the pressure to say it in a nice way? Like, sometimes, I sometimes apologize too much or I'm too effusive. And I think I think for me, it's been really important to learn just say like that no is a complete sentence. And I still struggle with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, there's no apology needed in that at all. It's not your fault that somebody else is asking you to uh, do something unfairly. <laughs> to, to, you know, it, it is definitely their their fault. And Also, there is a lack of knowledge and understanding there. So it is just a quick education maybe is is what does have to happen. Like educating them that that is not okay (laughs) is the first step. Yeah. Zach, I don't know if you had anything you wanted to say about that before we move forward. I mean, you you kind of summed up where, where I go with it. I've been asked that a few times. And depending on who the person is, sometimes will dictate to what extent my response. Someone who I'm very close with. I'm a little more open to having that dialogue. Someone who I don't really have that depth of relationship with, I definitely share you know, our resource page and let them know there are some good places to, to gain information. And I'm open, I'm usually more open to having a discussion once I know you've educated yourself a little bit and we can have an educated discussion. So I've always made myself available for those follow-ups, but more often than not, I, I send them to some other resources and and say, um, you know, happy to, uh, to, to expound, you know, once you've gotten yourself a, a base of knowledge. Thank you so much. So we have an anonymous call-in question that Zach will play for you um, to answer, Melinda. Hi there. One question that's really been coming up for me is, how can one be an effective ally when there isn't an existing culture of allyship present? particularly where the norm may be to perpetuate marginalization instead? Well, the first thing I do is understand why that's happening in your culture as, as, as an ally. Understand why. Why is that, why is that marginalization being perpetuated and, and what is probably something either cultural and or systemic and that you can start to change. I would go there first, honestly, as an ally and, and go to the source of the problem. What is the root of that problem and and work to solve it as an ally. And I would also say that you have agency to be an ally, even if the culture does not support it. I mean, we all have our own agency to create change and we all have our own agency to make a difference in people's lives. And again, I do believe that if you're in a system where 
it is the norm to perpetuate marginalization and you're not doing anything about it, it's not a good thing. You know, I believe you have a role and a responsibility to change it. Thank you so much. And thank you to that caller for asking that question. I think that's a question that's probably on a lot of folks' minds. So really, we really appreciate that. We have another listener call-in question from a listener named Jenna in Ohio. And if I'm remembering correctly, I think Jenna called in on a prior episode. So thank you so much, Jenna, for being an active and engaged listener. And yeah, let's hear what Jenna has to say. Hey, this is Jenna from Athens, Ohio. And I was just wondering, What does being an ally look like when a person or group is being actively marginalized? What are the most important actions to be taken during moments of crisis? Thank you so much. It really does. It does depend a lot on the situation. Um, There's no easy blanket. This is what you do when you see marginalization being experienced, except to do something. (laughs) Right. Um, And there are two pieces of that doing something. One is maybe three. There are three pieces to that that action you can take. One is to stop that harm from happening in that moment. The second is to treat the impact of that harm on the people that are experiencing it. And then the third is to stop the harm from happening in the future. So within that it depends on what the situation is as to exactly what you're doing. If, if somebody is being belittled, if they're experiencing a racist comment or, or something like that, that intervention could mean that you pause the conversation. It depends on if it's intentional or not. If it's not intentional, then you have the ability to educate that person in the moment. Hey, that can be a harmful comment and here's why. And here's what you might say instead. And then... The other piece of that is, as you you talked about earlier, Darylise, is checking in with that person afterwards. Was that okay? Did that feel okay for you? Um, Was there something I could have done better? And before you do that, even are you okay (laughs) after that situation and really checking in with them? And then after that, maybe if that person is interested, you could work together on like, how do we, how might I do something different in the future? How might we change the system so that this doesn't happen in the future and so on and really work to to change, change the situation so it doesn't happen again. Well, and I want to say, I mean, thank you so much for that comprehensive answer and also Jenna for that really in-depth question. And I just want to say, again, there will be a link to how to be an ally in the show notes, because I, I think, Melinda, you did a wonderful job of kind of breaking down some of the broad stroke mechanics of that. But in your book, you really delve deeply into how to be an effective ally. And I think that because it can be so situational and so nuanced, it's really helpful and supportive. And I'll also share that I kind of touch on some of those themes in demystifying diversity, embracing our shared humanity. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well, because I think there is a huge gap to your earlier point, Melinda, between intention and desire and the ability to apply skills. And so what I loved about your work, what I try to do in my work is like give people concrete action steps that they can take that are not going to be a stand-in for that empathy generation that's built in that one-on-one relationship with the person, but will give them a starting place. And so, yeah, we'll definitely put a link to your book. We've already done that, but there's definitely a link to your book in the show notes so that people can get a more in-depth answer as well. 
So we have another question from a caller named Ray, and I'll just preface this by saying that we touched on aspects of Ray's question earlier when I asked about how privilege hurts the privileged person or how influence or power hurts the person with influence and power. But Ray's question was far more direct and more pointed. And so I love it. Um, And uh, Zach, if you could just play the question, that'd be great. Hi, this is Ray from Pittsburgh. And I had a question. Uh, The question is, how does white supremacy negatively impact white people? Thank you very much. I think that there are some some great resources out there for learning a lot more about white supremacy. And, and my work definitely touches on it, but it is, the, the bulk of it is my work is really kind of giving people the steps that they can take to move forward and really looking more broadly at race, ethnicity, gender, disability, LGBTQIA+, and age, and and all, and people with underrepresented identities. So this is not my core area of expertise. So I just wanted to say that up front, that maybe we can provide some resources for folks to really learn more about this. I have a thought towards it. Go for it. I look at a lot of things on a spectrum. And when I think of the spectrum of white people, I have white supremacists at a far end. And I have folks like yourself at the other end, the allies who are not just even allies in in word, but actually are practicing and teaching others. And in between is someone who's neutral. And of course, there's varying levels of degrees. I think there's some folks who aren't practicing white supremacists. They're not KKK members, but they strongly do not like other folks from ethnic backgrounds or sexual orientations and things like that. They just don't go out with pitchforks and do the whole thing. So because there's a spectrum and there's levels, I feel like the stigma of white supremacy or someone who is in that space, it affects people who are lower down in that spectrum from other people's perspective. I don't know where you fall on this spectrum. And I honestly think there's way more people in the middle and on the ally side than there are on the supremacist side. But the people in the middle don't get that credit unless they're speaking out about the allyship, they get lumped into the racist and the supremacist phase if they're not actively on the allyship space and actually speaking towards it. So I think that's kind of how it negatively affects a lot of white folks who are either just not on either fence and are kind of staying away from it, or even folks who are really allies, but they don't know how to eloquently speak about it and they're not outwardly talking about it. If you don't do that, you can easily get lumped into the racist category or extreme racist category, which goes towards white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. I I love that. I think that's really important. There's another piece of it too, that, um, that plays into that, which is that because we live in a society that privileges white people over others or over everybody else, that it makes it harder for white people to see the inequity um, because we haven't experienced it or we have experienced it on the side of the privilege and not on the side of being oppressed. And as a result, it takes work to educate ourselves about it and to really, we need to hear those stories. There was a study several years ago that showed that 70%, I think it's 70% of white people only have white friends. And so that means that white people are not generally experiencing people outside of whiteness and people aren't building empathy for each other 
and learning about different experiences that people have with systems, with processes, with interpersonal relationships. And, and so that, that is one of the ways that white supremacy plays out, even when we're talking about becoming better allies, is there's that barrier of, I didn't even know this was happening, which is a privilege and, and a barrier for change. Um, I didn't even know that was happening. I don't know what to do about it. This is all new to me. And so I'm uncomfortable. And I am, as a result, fearful of doing something. And so I do nothing at all. I want to say, and it seems like you all went from the standpoint of, and I think this is the standpoint of our listenership, the standpoint of the white person who is themselves an ally or wants to be, or perhaps just doesn't have conscious biases or isn't aware of their biases or would be horrified and would want to change if they were made aware of their biases. I think we all sort of took that tact, but I want to speak about the person who is themselves a white supremacist. The energy of hatred is overwhelming. There is a lot that goes into the energy of hatred and active bigotry and active othering of people. And it's energy that could be used to uplift oneself or one's society or, you know, or to do better for one's children or one's family or, you know, or to to build those empathy muscles or, or whatnot. And, and so I think just looking at the person themselves who it might be very hard to have empathy for and compassion for because they are spewing venom and violence and hatred, like thinking about from that person's perspective, all of the energy that goes into creating an illusion of superiority that's based on a fixed, you know, that's based on an unchangeable element of identity doesn't really give them much space to better educate themselves or to become a more dynamic person in the world or to benefit from all of the beautiful things that diversity has to offer. And there are very high suicide rates and high incarceration rates and those types of things for individuals who really do sort of succumb to the allure of hating other people based on an element of their identity and and even like becoming violent around that. So I just kind of want to throw that out there that to Zach's point about the spectrum, it does impact people all along the spectrum, white supremacy, and even those who are the most vehemently in defense of it are, yes, hurting others and being violent against others. But those are not happy ending stories for anyone. Yeah, that's a really good point. So there's another question. We have another question from Jules from Ohio. Hi, this is Jules from Ohio. I have a question. Is there ever a time when it is not appropriate to insert oneself as an ally? Is there ever a time when that is not wanted or appreciated? Thanks so much for your thoughts. Yeah, I think this gets back to what we were talking about earlier, that you really do need to do the work to understand how somebody wants to be supported as an ally. And to Daryl's point, I think in that conversation, we really checking in, if you do intervene, checking in to make sure that that was the way somebody wanted you to intervene afterwards and, and really learning from that. I think the other piece of this is that you also need to be aware of your own safety. So there are times when intervening might be your own safety and the safety of the person who is being being harmed. Um, and, and sometimes intervening could put either one or both of you in harm's way and doesn't have the outcome that you want to have. So definitely important to 
make sure that that you're you're keeping that in mind. So, for instance, with anti-API hate, anti-Asian hate, there some of that is is very violent. And there's some great courses that you can take to learn about how to intervene in a way that is not going to harm you or the person that is being harmed in that moment. So I would I would encourage you to take some of those courses and and really learn how to intervene in, in those situations so that you can be a great ally in those situations. Sometimes it is to protect the person that is being harmed and walk away. Sometimes it is not about confronting somebody that is going to potentially be escalated in that moment. So yes, there, there are definitely, you have to kind of be aware of the situation be aware of your own power and privilege in that situation, and then assess what is going to be the most beneficial for the person who is currently being harmed. Thank you so much. That was such a rich answer. And um so appreciated. And thank you so much, Jules, for the question. We have one last listener question from another Ohio listener. So loving like all the Ohio listens to this podcast. And here's Trish with a question. Hi, this is Trish from Ohio. And I have a question. How would you recommend going about a conversation with loved ones who have views that are harmful towards other groups? Like, what ways do you see that allow for meaningful discourse that also avoid major fights with the family? Thank you so much. Yeah, so important. I mean, I know you could do a whole podcast episode on this. (laughs) I think uh, this is a, a bigger, bigger question to answer. With anybody that you're having a conversation with, it is starting from where they are. If somebody is at level one, you don't want to go to level 10 with them immediately. Start at level one, figure out how you can access what is important to them, relate this to what is important to them. And you as a family member, you probably have a pretty good insight into into that. So how can you relate this conversation and really frame it in a way that is not so confrontational, but is bringing them in, calling them in and working with them to move them along rather than pushing, 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 because pushing generally doesn't work so well and isn't good for family dynamics in the long run. Also know that you're not going to change everybody too. And and that is important. And sometimes we can really burn ourselves out by trying to change one person rather than looking at the bigger picture of the impact that we can create with our lives and our words and our actions. And so if you just can't change someone, perhaps spend your time doing other things that can be more beneficial to the world and to society. Fantastic. Thank you so much for those answers. And thank you for all the folks who sent in uh, the questions. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for listening this season and for being such an involved and engaged audience. Even though we'll be on break as we prepare for season three of the podcast, Please feel free to call and message us with your DEI questions so we can answer and help as you listen, understand, and grow. You can contact us via the website at www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com or call us at 844-888-8148. We can't wait to hear from you. And Melinda, so give us you know an idea of what were your major takeaways from those two episodes about white allyship and from the other voices you heard on those episodes. There's so much in those episodes. Those are amazing. They're really in-depth looks at this. I I will say that 
you talked about what is needed and why it's important, why why all of this is important. So key, you know, we're this is stolen land, stolen people, mass incarceration, disproportionate inequity in health outcomes, gun violence linked to racism, and so on. And there's so many reasons for doing this this work. There's, there's so many inequities. And really you're tapping into, you talked a lot about people's different motivations for that, for, for doing this work. And, and I would encourage anybody who hasn't listened to those to go back and, and listen, because maybe you'll find some more of your own motivation there too, and some more ideas and, and things to latch on to, um, ways to kind of move you through discomfort and fear. The, the part about individualism really struck me too, because I've been thinking about that a lot lately, that there's a, a lot of, I believe that a lot of our current issues, whether it is the division in our country around mask mandates, around race and even sexism and also and ableism and, and all of the isms, but especially race right now, and also climate injustice and environmental uh, disparities. I think all of that is kind of rooted in this me, the centering around myself and centering around my immediate family, the right now, rather than really looking at our impact beyond that. And we have impact on the world and the, the actions that we take, our daily actions every day, whether it's allyship actions, whether it's recycling, whether it's using energy, whether how we use energy, all of that matters across the globe. And yet we have such an, a focus on my immediate benefit right now in this moment, not even when my kids grow up. I mean, my immediate moment, um, a benefit to my kids right now, we're not thinking about like when they grow up, what kind of a planet are we leaving to them? And so that individualism, I think, is really detrimental to all of us when we think so much about ourselves and really center everything around ourselves in this moment. We hurt ourselves, we hurt our kids and their lives as they grow up and and we're hurting the world and so i don't know that that piece really did strike me quite a bit and i think it's something to for all of us to really think about is is that really the way we want to live is that the really the impact that we want to have on the world and the planet and each other well, and Melinda, I know you just spoke about not just being out for one's individual self, but because the work that you're doing really does support the uplifting of people and support the the dismantling of systems of oppression, I want to ask, you know, in this conversation about allyship, how can we and how can DDP listeners support the work that you're doing and be allies to that work? Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And I think the biggest thing is to go buy my book would be great. Um, there's a lot of learnings in there. There's a lot of answers in more detail there, as, as Darylise mentioned earlier. And also share the book with your colleagues. You might, might consider if you have the power to give the book to your whole organization or your whole team, that can actually be really powerful to read together and work to create change together in that way. So that would be what I say. And, and, and yes, that helps me to some degree, but it's not like I make a lot of money on, but on the book, I wrote the book to create change in the world. And so, <laughs> um, and, and for anybody who has written books, you don't make a lot yeah. of money on it. It's not no. about that. It's about changing, <laughs> creating change. <laughs> awesome. Now, Darylise, I know we have one last question for Melinda, but before we get to that, you know what time it is. It's time to do our very last book giveaway of season two. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Zach and I drew a name at random before starting this Q&A episode. And the winner is... Emily Carlino. Congratulations, Yay! Emily. You've won a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, and its accompanying workbook. Yay, Emily. Uh, we'll send you an email to get your information and we'll mail you signed copies of the book and the workbook. So thank you so much for being a subscriber and definitely, yes, buy a copy of Melinda's book as well if you're listening to this. <laughs> Indeed. And if you're listening to this podcast and you're not already receiving our newsletter, uh, we hope you'll go to our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com and sign up. Uh, you won't want to miss our episode updates. And especially as we gear up for this next season break, you'll want to make sure to sign up so you can receive any special announcements we put out there. And of course, make sure you follow us on social media as well. Yeah, please connect with us through the website, through social, everywhere and anywhere. Um, thank you to those who have already subscribed and who've reached out to us, reviewed the podcast and sent in questions. We're so grateful for your support. So Melinda, last question, and we touched on this a bit, but I like to ask all of our guests this question because I think it's so essential. So Melinda, why do you do the work that you do? Why is it important to you personally and why should it matter to others? Mm, I love that question. So I do this work personally. I will say that uh, I have always, since I can remember, wanted to make a difference in the world and wanted to make the world a better place. And, and so throughout my life, I have, it's been kind of a search for the best way to do that and, and to continue to do that work, whether that was uh, initially, I, I studied cultural anthropology and, and behavior science, and then ended up being a documentary filmmaker for about 10 years and creating social impact through the power of storytelling, and then took all of those things and, and brought it into business and really changing how business is done, and now doing the work around diversity, equity, and inclusion, because I believe that all of the change that we want to have in this world is not going to fundamentally happen without diverse leaders really leading that change and really making a difference in our companies, in our organizations, in our countries, and really creating a, a place where products, services, what we do and how we do it is all in keeping with equity and, and really benefiting all of us uh, rather than just some of us. And so that's why I do the work. And I believe that there aren't very many people that are activists that are dedicating their lives to this work. And I understand that. And also, there's so many little things that we can do every day that can make a difference. And so I encourage you to do a little bit more. Just take one more action. And then another action, maybe once you get, once you get that going and, and really make a difference for the people around you. That's awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Melinda, for joining us today. And thank you for all the people who are listening, wherever you are. I know we've been listened in over 50 countries, so thank you so much. Mm. Uh, if you're listening to this and you want to get in touch with Melinda, Melinda, tell folks, what, what's the best place to get in contact with you? Yeah, you can find me on social media, on LinkedIn, on on Twitter, I'm at Embriana Epler. And Instagram at Change Catalysts. And you can go to melindabriannaepler.com, my website. Lots of ways to, to find me. And yeah, thank you both for, for having me and having these deep discussions about this work. It's so, so important and I, and I love it. I'm so glad that you invited me. Awesome. Thank you, thank so, you much. so much. Thank you. We'll put all your socials and links uh, in our show notes. And of course, folks, if you haven't already, please uh, like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. 
Also visit DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com to subscribe to our newsletter and learn about our diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other DEI services. Um, We've so enjoyed bringing you content this season, and we're already looking forward to next season and have so many things planned uh, that you won't want to miss. Yes, uh, we'll definitely be keeping you all posted with announcements. Uh, but just to let you know, interviews for next season are already well underway. Um, and next season is going to have some great content. It could be you. It could be me. What can we do to keep the peace? Every episode of the Mystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lyons. With the invaluable assistance of co-collaborator and marketing manager, Zach James, assistant producer and editor, Paul Kondo, production and development assistant, Stuart Kreintz, and content editor and creative collaborator, Sunny Taylor. The music you heard is Better by Brittany Monet. Thank you again to Melinda and to you, the listener. Please join us next season. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.